Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio this week are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. Our guest this week is Christian Noyer, the former head of the Banque de France. This week, we'll be looking at Andrea Orchel's move from UBS to Santander, an examination of Paris's chances of emerging as a financial trading centre post-Brexit, and finally look at Tesco Bank as it gets fined a landmark £16 million by the FCA. First, though, to that story about Andrea Rochelle. He is one of the last big rainmaker names, I suppose, in investment banking. For the past few years, he's been running the whole investment bank at UBS. But in something of a surprise, he announced he was going to move to Spain's Santander as chief executive. Stephen, this did take the market by surprise to some extent. The bean suggestions that he might not be entirely happy at UBS, but the move to Santander certainly took people off guard. Tell us the backstory here. Well, it wasn't actually very widely known that Santander was looking for a CEO because they have a very powerful executive chairman, Anna Botin. She took over the bank after her father. And Andrea Orchel at UBS has been his and her biggest external advisor for years. So really, it's interesting for what it means for the Spanish bank and what it means for the Swiss bank that Orchel left. You could read this as an admission on behalf of Santander that it needs a bit of a shot in the arm. It faces several problems. Its Spanish business is underperforming. The shares have dipped 12% under Anna Botin, and they're still having problems over in the US where they failed the stress test three times in a row. So they're looking for somebody to come in, help right the ship, digitize the bank, cut costs, as Orchel did very successfully at UBS. But the potential more interesting thing is whether they'll utilize his deal-making history in order to do something transformative in the US or elsewhere to really light a fire under Santander again. One person we spoke to for the story we did last week quipped that Orchel hasn't been hired for his expertise on cross-selling insurance to mortgage clients as a sort of a reflection on his move from one of the world's bigger investment banks to a predominantly retail and commercial lender. And what about UBS? He was a slightly divisive figure, I think it's fair to say, at UBS. His management style was pretty uncompromising. So some certainly won't be shedding tears over his departure. On the other hand, it's a pretty damaging departure reputationally. He was a big name. He was very effective, seemingly. What does it mean for UBS, do you think? Well, it leaves two major questions. For those he leaves behind in the investment bank, he was its biggest sponsor. And whilst cutting back the unit quite harshly. He did shield it from getting any smaller within part of the group. There is some pressure on behalf of investors to shrink the investment bank and use the capital more on the wealth management side, which has better returns and is showing better growth prospects in this kind of post-crisis regulatory environment. You're right, he was a divisive figure. One person we spoke to who wished to remain anonymous for obvious reasons said he was the best banker I've ever worked with and the worst manager I've ever seen. 
So I get the sense that he was quite demanding of his subordinates. And uh, if you were in his good books and you worked hard, you'd think he was fantastic. But if you fancied getting a bit more than five hours sleep a night, maybe he wasn't your man. <laughs> well, certainly big questions for how UBS will adapt to his departure and also what Santander has waiting for it. We will report back on both of those topics. Let's move on to the second item and a look at Paris as a financial centre. As regular listeners will know, the rival financial centres of Frankfurt and Dublin won the race to attract subsidiaries being set up by the banks and asset managers and insurance companies for their post-Brexit planning. But that's not really where all the jobs and potential tax revenues are. Far more important in that regard is which centre emerges as a trading capital, and we think it may well be Paris. So, Stephen, who's leading the charge? Well, the new news here is really that two of the biggest financial institutions in the world, BlackRock, the biggest money manager with more than $6 trillion of assets under management, as well as J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the world's biggest investment banks, are increasingly looking at Paris as a place to create their trading hub. Now, this is slightly different to where they might have their EU base, their new headquarters. The majority of those have gone to Dublin or Frankfurt. So this is slightly different, but this is where their trading floor will be. This is where they do all their bond trading, their equity trading. And Bank of America really kicked this process off. Over the summer, they said that they were going to expand this new building in the centre of the city in a really swanky neighbourhood with room for up to a thousand staff. Now that's coming off the back of HSBC, picking the city as well. And now BlackRock are looking at increasing the size of their office sixfold. So that would be up to 300 people. Now, as you said, what you're talking about here is trading operations as opposed to the subsidiary structures that have to be put in place for legal and regulatory reasons. As you say, Frankfurt and Dublin won that battle. And indeed, Bank of America, which you just mentioned as being at the front of this process in terms of setting up a trading floor in Paris, actually put their subsidiary in Dublin. What matters most? Is it where the subsidiary is placed or where the trading floor might be? Well, I mean, both matter to a certain extent, but really what matters most is where the people are and what people there are. You may have a lot of your risk management, your back office operations located in the subsidiary, but if you have a thousand traders in Paris, they bring with them taxable revenue, they bring their own personal wealth, they increase the prestige, and obviously there's always going to be some kind of consolidation effect. This is what Daniel Pinto, the head of JP Morgan's investment bank, says they're kind of looking and waiting to see where the next financial centre might emerge. And people internally at J.P. Morgan Chase, they're increasingly looking at Paris as this place. Now, obviously, Frankfurt is a nice city, but Paris is one of the world's great cities as well. And it holds more of an attraction. It might be easier for someone at Bank of America or BlackRock to persuade them to trade in London for Paris compared to Frankfurt or Dublin. If you go back a couple of years, despite the appeal of the city, I think it would have been hard to find many financiers in London who would have seriously considered switching to Paris. And that was because the country was seen as pretty hostile to business, actually. Certainly high tax, high obstacles to labour flexibility and so on. That's all changed under Emmanuel Macron's presidency. And I caught up the other day with Christian Noyer, who is the former governor of the Banque de France, who is now leading the charge in terms of this charm offensive to win business from the city of London for Paris. And here's what he had to say about what's changed and why he thinks Paris is emerging as the likely trading hub of the post-Brexit world. 
Incidentally, I was talking to him in a noisy cafe just opposite the Bank of England, so please excuse the sound quality. We scrapped the higher part of waste tax. We uh, created this opting out for retirement. And on the rest of social security, there is a cap on health insurance. So there have been several changes that reduce the cost yes. of that very significantly. Parliament voted a, a cut in the corporate tax, implemented in, in four years. What was excluded, like in London, I think, is the inclusion of bonuses in the layoff costs. So we included bonuses of traders or risk takers in general. So that reduces considerably the cost of adapting your staff. On top of those tax and labour reforms, Mr Noyer talked powerfully about how he had interacted with the Macron government to problem solve. When I collect remarks in the financial industry saying, well, we have a, a problem there that we don't know how to solve, I go to the government and almost every time the minister says, OK, we've got to solve that, so find a solution. So what is the solution you propose? Well, he instructs the ministries to uh, work out something. And it comes himself. from Macron himself. Yeah. He also went on to talk about how the basic structures in Paris were already in evidence before the latest reforms, that ecosystem that exists because of the large domestic French financial system. The pool of talents is there. Second, Paris is the whole ecosystem. That is, in Frankfurt, you just have banks. You have very little asset management, you have no insurance, you have no manufacturing headquarters. Then what really convinced, I think, is the pace of reform. But in the feeling that France is now the country that is moving, we fixed all the major hurdles they saw. But all the reforms implemented have been such that we now are far better in the case of labor market than many other countries. And altogether, this makes Paris into what he believes will be the trading hub of the future. I think, yes, in a way, Paris could become the big trading hub in continental Europe. But it does not mean that London will not remain the biggest financial centre. But then, as much as I see corporate books can be shared between three or four centres, the money market, the dealing of securities and derivatives, there you need to have one place with enough liquidity easily connected to London. That's why I think, yes, in a sense, Paris could become that. Therefore, that's a bit my vision. So clearly we're at the early stages, Stephen, of this whole process. As we said, Bank of America has been upfront about what it's planning for Paris. The other banks and asset managers that we identified are doing this very quietly and it'll in all likelihood, take many years for this whole process to get up any momentum. But what does it mean for the City of London if this pans out as we expect? Well, obviously, nothing's going to happen overnight. And the number of jobs we've seen moved from London or, or hired elsewhere are actually fairly low so far. But over time, this will be negative for the city. Banks gravitate towards where the capital is. And if we're seeing some of the world's biggest money managers and investors like BlackRock turn Paris into their EU headquarters, their EU hub, it's going to be more advantageous for banks to be located near there. And it's going to be a general trend away that will bleed into other aspects of London society. It'll feed through into house prices, you know, the law firms, 
and even through into the nice restaurants that we've built up here over the last few years. So it is a bit of a blow that because of the state of the Brexit negotiations and the fact that the EU has played hardball with what can be and can't be located in Britain, which will be a third country after Brexit, it really does look like cities on the continent, such as Frankfurt and Paris, are going to be taking a lot of business and a lot of people away from London in the years to come. We will watch it very closely. Thank you, Stephen. So let's move on to our final topic and a look at Tesco Bank, not an institution we cover very often in the Banking Weekly podcast. They are a relatively small institution, but they've hit the headlines for all the wrong reasons over the last few days, Martin. Being fined £16 million by the Financial Conduct Authority. Tell us what went on. The fine is a record fine for a company that's been the victim of a cyber attack. And the reason is that the Financial Conduct Authority identified a series of failings, which meant that Tesco Bank exposed their customers to a much greater risk of having money taken out of their accounts by the fraudulent transactions that were carried out, uh, what looks like by cyber criminals operating out of Brazil, who were cloning debit cards. And Tesco Bank was warned a year before the attack about similar types of attacks happening in Brazil and the US and about a hole in security regarding its debit cards, but they didn't fix that completely. And then when the attack happened at 2am on a Saturday in November 2016, and their automated system started sending out alerts, text messages to their customers who were affected, Customers started calling their fraud desk. There were tweets from customers about all of this. And yet, it took them almost an entire day before they did anything to fix the hole in their security because the teams weren't communicating properly with each other. They were sending emails instead of making phone calls. Then when they did it, they messed up the code so that they didn't actually fix the security flaw. So the hackers were still able to continue attempting to process tens of thousands of these fraudulent transactions in Brazil. And it was only when they eventually, in the small hours of Monday, some 48 hours later, they brought in a third party expert in cybersecurity that identified a problem with their system and how they were processing transactions that they fixed the flaw that finally stopped all of this fraud. So they just missed a series of opportunities to sort themselves out. And they were found wanting when they came under attack at the crucial point. Yeah, it's interesting that it's Tesco Bank that has suffered this because obviously alongside the unprecedented fine, you've got all the reputational damage for the Tesco brand, which I seem to remember was the group's biggest worry about getting into banking in a big way. Many years ago when they kind of dipped their toe into this sector, this is exactly what they'd been fearing. Let me bring Caroline in on the broader point here because... As we've heard, it sounds very much like Tesco Bank handled this really badly. But as we know, cyber attacks similar to this happen all the time to banks all around the world. Are we going to see more fines by regulators over this issue, do you think? I think the short answer to that is yes. I would say... Tesco Bank handled the attack pretty badly. Actually, if you look at how they've dealt with the FCA, I'd say they actually played a bit of a blinder because they got the FCA down from a fine of 33 million to under half of that. And they've double discounted, basically. So 
because they had taken out a mediation exercise with their customers and they cooperated fully, they got a 30% discount. And then they got another 30% discount because they agreed to settle early. So actually, in terms of looking at it as a precedent for other firms and how to deal with these kind of events when you've got to deal with a regulator, actually, it's a pretty good model. But as to your wider point, I would say, yes, there's definitely a lot of regulatory scrutiny being brought to bear, particularly on financial firms at the moment and how they handle data, cyber attacks, any kind of what we call operational resilience. And the Bank of England and the FCA earlier this year put boards on notice that they were ultimately in the firing line if they got this wrong. And basically, both authorities had a very low tolerance for firms that didn't have this front and centre. I think the other thing to bear in mind is that if you're a regulated financial entity, you're basically looking at a dual pronged attack from regulators. You've got the FCA and the Bank of England, if you're a particularly large bank or insurer, but you've also got to think about the Information Commissioner's Office. Their finding power is quite limited at the moment. It only stands at £500,000 as a maximum fine. But I think, as you point to in your earlier remarks, there's the wider reputational damage that has to be contended with. Absolutely. Well, definitely something for banks increasingly to be worried about there. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Stephen and Caroline here in the studio and also our guest, Christian Noyer, who is the former head of the Banque de France. Thank you also for listening. If you're not already a subscriber to the FT, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.